0: Welcome to PageCast, a podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Bull Publishers, aimed to give you the story behind the story. By interviewing the authors responsible for some of your most loved books, we explore the thoughts, ideas, emotions, and creative processes that led to the writing of these books. If you're a reader with a zesty interest in people and stories, do stick around and enjoy what PageCast has to offer. It is really such a huge pleasure for me today to be able to share with you one of the most remarkable stories I've ever read, but certainly one of the most remarkable books I've read in the last year or so. Uh, It is a very thought-provoking and incredibly moving memoir and a story of enormous courage. Uh, It shares Dr. Emmanuel Taban's story. He grew up in poverty in South Sudan, and it is a story of migration, of building a new life on grit and resilience and courage. And it is a remarkable story. Uh, um, As some of you may know, he is today one of the country's leading pulmonologists. He has been involved in Uh, at the cutting edge of uh, treating patients with COVID-19. Speaking of which, I have been asked to remind you all, please, to keep masks on for the duration of the talk. Um, That is one of the rules of the festival, which we're obliged to uh, go along with. Don't shoot the messenger, please. Um, And just to say that I'm gonna chat with Dr. Taban for about 40, 45 minutes, and then we will make some space at the end of the program for audience questions, which is your opportunity, which I hope you'll seize. Also to say that at the end, um, books are available at the back of the hall, and if you'd like, you're signed by the man of the moment, that uh, he'll be there available as well. So thank you all very much for joining us, and Dr. Taban, what an honor to have you with us. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank
1: you so much. I first want to say really thank you so much for, your, for this amazing welcome, and also for attendance. I'm in full venue. I never thought of that a few years ago. And I'm really very grateful, and thank you so much. It's It's great to see you in in person.
0: We've chatted on the radio, so it's very nice to do this face-to-face. Let's start with a little bit of background for those who haven't read the book and don't know the full extent of your story. You were born in South Sudan in a very small village uh, and a very happy early childhood, but not an easy one.
1: Well, uh, what I could say that I think when I was born, I was just like the rest of the African. My surroundings were good. I was helpless. When you're helpless, you accept your circumstances the way they are. Whether you're poor or where you're rich, you don't know what's better. So you're surrounding the time and how far you go. And that was my story when I was growing up in South Sudan. And I was a happy child, despite, yeah, despite poverty.
0: I believe that a nurse once told you as a youngster that you could be a doctor. And at the time, you thought it was an absolutely impossible thing to say.
1: It's, it's, it's actually amazing. You know what, that people actually can predict your lives. And, and it's not just really I think sometimes actually you could link the fact that this person looked at you saying, "But you could become a doctor." And I was about seven years old. I think she always seen something in me that maybe I didn't know. I mean that I did not even know what doctors is all about. Yeah. But I, for me, it was amazing, actually, looking back, that she could actually predict that I'll become a doctor, maybe based on my personalities and the way I probably behave.
0: I don't know. She had no idea what long path, though, awaited you in getting there. Now, you were one of five siblings. You were raised by a single mother, and your description in this book of how she fought and struggled and started up micro-enterprises and wheeled and dealed to, to keep you guys alive and fed and looked after is just remarkable. But it's also very interesting to me that she had very high expectations for you and particularly for you, that you were going to be the one who would lift your family out of their circumstances. What do you think that was, was due to Yeah, Well, I, th- I think my mother,
1: I mean, let me, uh, let me first say uh, a little the fact that being, being a fatherless child is very difficult. So, I mean, this is a big story in Africa. And if you look at South Africa alone, 60% of the children are born fatherless, especially in the black community. It means you are left for your mother, actually, to nurse you. And the problem that really is about being a mother, it's very difficult. Everything that the man is a king in relations, but the reality that the woman actually wears the trousers, not the man. And I will tell you why. If you're a mother and you have a child, if you have one grand, you must divide 50-50 with your child. But if you're a father, if you disagree with the mother, you just walk away. And you don't need to pay anything back. And that was the story of my mother. And so I grew up with really with the mother who must provide because if there's no food, we'll be crying. And all my tears, she, she, she's have to be the one to wipe them off, not my father because he was already somewhere else, having pleasure somewhere else. And that's for me, it was very sad. And I think for me today, women in Africa deserve quite a lot of, um, lot of you know, support because mm-hmm. they really carry a heavy cross. In, in keeping up the continent up. And I wish probably us as men, we could contribute to also uplift the continent a bit up by mm. being the true fathers.
0: We'll get back to that uh, a little bit later on. Um, Dr. taban I mean, your life changed dramatically in your early teens when civil war spilled over into the region where you lived. And from a relatively unscathed, happy childhood, it became a story of raids by rebels and shootings and disappearances and ongoing disruption to your education as a result. How much formal schooling were you actually able to finish in South Sudan?
1: I think when I was in the village, I was seven, so I was put first to primary one. And then the teacher means thought that maybe I was much smarter than my siblings. Then I was moved to primary two. And in the middle of that year, the war already begins. So I spent half of my time in the bush, running with no school. In 1987, that's when we moved to, South, to Juba, which is now the capital city of South Sudan. And there I got an opportunity to go to a Catholic-based school, and I was moved to primary three. And that was the first time, really, that I had a proper schooling. And I did that quite well up to primary six. And then the war again came now to, to Juba, capital city. And after finishing primary six, we, we went two years without school. And then immediately the school reopened, and I thought, wow, I think I'm clever enough. I'm going to move to intermediate three, which is what called grade nine. And I went to grade nine, of course, after struggling, I passed. And again, then the war begins again. So that was the five years of school that I did in all of South Sudan. So my school was badly uh, interrupted. So I know up to now I have certain deficiencies in my basic education, <laughs> which is probably my language I could speak. But if you have to write, it's extremely difficult. So that's why I probably need to get a ghostwriter to write my book. <laughs> uh, and yeah. But I think I met with science, analytics, that I mean you it's not a problem because I could comprehend that very well. Yeah. So I think my school was a bit subsided. Yeah.
0: I mean, which makes where you've ended up all the more remarkable. Um, Particularly then, I know at this time, peers of yours were being taken away to become child soldiers. There was that very real threat in between the disruptions to schooling. There was that immediate threat that you might be the next person that, that was grabbed. And it was your arrest and torture at the age of 14 that really was the catalyst to you deciding you could not stay where you were. You weren't able to even tell your family about the decision to leave, were you? Talk to us about what decision you came to and, and, and where your feet took you.
1: You know, the, the reality is that, of course, when we went to Juba, my mother... You know, when you're in the village, you have the wild fruit to eat. You have the neighbours to go and get food. You play. There's a lot of support. Our grandmother's house was close by. Uncle was close by. But when you went, go to capital city where everybody got their own house, house with fencing, you cannot get wild fruits anymore. So life became extremely difficult. So you become a burden for the family. And that was, for me, it was very hard. And of course, because I was a very young, clever child who needed more stimulation. However, there was no any stimulation in the, in the city itself. You know? And that, I think, become very difficult. So as time goes, the, the family view us as a troubled child. And until the point that I left the country, I reached the point that where everybody think that I was a troubled child because I wanted education. I wanted more in life. But people could not understand that because when you grew up in a place like South Sudan, the very important moral that you should suppose uphold, one of them is to go to church, pray, and pray, and pray. But at the same time, I didn't see any value in that. So I ended really not going to church the way everybody expect me to go because I just didn't understand why should we go to church and pray endlessly and nothing changed. It didn't make sense to me. I needed school. I needed training. I needed work. I needed something which I couldn't get it. And of course, when I found myself being arrested in, in the, in, the put in prison for a number of weeks, six-week torture, that's, that was the first thing to say, I need to get out of my predicaments. And that's when I converted to Islam And I was given, of course, when I converted to Islam, I was given enough food. Somebody somehow showed that they care. And I said, okay, great, I'll take the opportunity. Let me go and read the Quran, be the best in it, and see what happened. Until that's when I... And I didn't want to communicate that to my mother, who was a a strong Christian. Mm -hmm. And, And, of course, if I tell him, that was going to be a problem. So I said, now I'm going to go to the north. And she was actually very happy, because at least a troubled child is no longer her child. At least it's somebody else's trouble with the relative wherever it is, but still didn't know where I was going. And of course, that's when I left to the north. And and then from there, that's when I thought, no, I will not become a Muslim. There's nothing uh, that, apart from offering prayers over and over, it was not going to change my life. So I needed to go back to school, and I also missed my family, and that's when I left the country.
0: Mm. Now, the book describes, in just the most incredible detail, the journey that followed 3,000 kilometers, most of it on foot. And that was just to get to, to Nairobi, Kenya, where there was an uncle that you thought might be able to help, might be able to take you in. And he did for a little while, but it soon became clear to you that you weren't going to be able to stay there. What was the moment that made you redirect your attention to the southern tip of Africa and think, maybe that's where I should go?
1: You know, the, the, the reality about that, I think maybe it's very easy for somebody just saying, you know what, I'm going to Johannesburg. sounds very easy, but that you don't know what will happen for on your trip from here to Joburg. And so many things could change along the way. There are a lot of challenges. So life is really a journey. You know, throughout the day we are born, it's just a journey that we have to take. And I remember that the plan was really not to come to South Africa. It was taking one step. I just want to get to Nairobi and get education. But of course, I faced a lot of challenges throughout the way, being a street child until I arrived in Nairobi. But when I arrived in Nairobi, I wasn't welcome. I was told to go to refugee camp. And the, the problem with the refugee camp, there were thousands of South Sudanese who were helpless. And I thought, wow, I'm going to get lost in the crowd. And I needed to find my own path. And that's the reason why that Coca-Cola bottle that changed my life, because I like reading. The biggest issue with us, you know, no matter how poor you are, there's one thing that you should do yourself, read. Because most details are in the book. And that will open your mind up. And I always like reading. And that was the opportunity that saying, you know what, I'm going to go to South Africa. But the most important thing, I never put a perspective of the distance. Because if you start thinking about the distance, about the rivers, about the, the animals, about all the dangers, you create a fear in your life. And when you create a fear, I promise you, it might become real. And that's, what I didn't have that particular time. And even today, I refuse to think any negative because I'm worried it'll become truth. So I keep my thought positive because the positivity will happen in my mind.
0: So from literally reading the label on a bottle of Coke, seeing the the word South Africa and going, well, I might as well try that. It was a long, really hard journey to get here. And when you did get here, you had left feeling not welcome. You weren't exactly op- welcomed with open arms when you arrived in South Africa either after this long and arduous and physically grueling challenge. What was the turning point for you that allowed you to stay in South Africa and to find a way back into the education system?
1: Yeah, I think, I think when I arrived in South Africa, of course I spent also three days as a street child until the Combonis actually, Bishop Sandry, took me over. And I remember, I went and I did a lot of work as a gardener, and I did the work in the construction, which was difficult. And I remember the words of my mother, who think that I was intelligent. But let's be honest, all mothers think their kids are all going to become doctors. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to believe in, 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 in my mother. So I thought, uh, that's when I asked her, I need to go to school. But then the biggest question was saying, but you've only done five years of schooling. You have no certificate. How do we actually know that you can go to school? And I told them that, you know what, if you show me the book, I will show you. Because I only want to see mathematics books, because I thought I was good in maths. Until someone showed me the maths book, I said, no, I'm going to grade 11. and said, no, you must go to grade 7. I said, no, I'm going to grade 7. I'm old now. I'm 18. So I said, okay, great. So that's when, and I couldn't get to any school in Joburg, because I didn't have any marks. So I was taken to next the border of Swaziland. And that's when I did my grade uh, grade, uh, 11 and 12. But of course, in South Africa, you must have two languages. So I tried Zulu. I couldn't have any clicks. And and it was difficult. Then I tried Afrikaans. I couldn't really speak it. But one of the things that Afrikaans for me is a poor language with no grammar. So I said, wow, I can do that. Since (laughs) Since it's more easier than English in writing. So I did Afrikaans. And the nice thing about Afrikaans is that you could actually write four or five essays, and you cram them all. Exams come, they'll ask you, one of the essays normally is saying, describe when you come from, sc- from home to school, that journey. So I remember I did an essay like that, and that show up, so I wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I got my 47%.
0: <laughs> I mean, against all odds, having walked largely on foot thousands of kilometers on your own as a child, here you find yourself accepted into medical school. I mean, that's a dream that, that even, kids you've had the, the privileges of perfect uninterrupted education and every luxury in life fight to get. It was an opportunity that was given to you that you certainly made the most of. How did it happen that you were able to be accepted into Medinsa?
1: I think when I finished at the Swaziland School at the Moi Plus, my average mark was fifty-seven. But I was well celebrated in that area because I was a top candidate. And Bishop Sandry said, come to Joburg when I arrived that morning with a taxi after two, three hours. And then he told me, go and find university. Then, that time there was no internet, no phones. So I went to Vets University and I stood and there was a white lady in front of me. I was so excited because I was going to become a doctor. Then she turned to me. and said, "No, I'm gonna. I want to do medicine." Then she looked at me and she looked at my marks, say, "You, you might not get in. Maybe you must do something else." Then to flip-up marks it was 78%. I said, "Oh no! How did you get that? You know, I thought I was the top guy." So so anyway, when I went from, I couldn't get to the school, to the university, and they wanted me to do accounting, and I just thought there were so many students which were doing accounting, and I said, "No, I that's probably not my strength." So I thought maybe engineering would be better. So I went to Joburg to Dorpontaine, where technical used to, is probably up to now there. And I was accepted to do electrical engineering. And I was very excited. I filled up the form. And when I went to the dean, I said, but I don't want to be here. I want to be at Vets University. Can I transfer everything here today? They said, no, this is technical. I said, no, I'm not doing this. I need to be at university, and I left. I remember I went home, and and I, I, by that time I was twenty years old. So my guardian asked me, "What do you want to do?" I said, "I want to do medicine." He said, "But did you find university?" I said, "No, there's none." Then he said, "What do you want to do?" I said, no, "I want to do medicine." He said, "Okay, then go and fight school." Then I said, no, "I'm gonna go and repeat my tricks," but what I didn't know, being twenty years old you're already older, you shouldn't be in matric, because everybody to to do matric you need to be 17, at least. And most good school would want you to join at the age of 15, 14. And I went to JP High School for Boys. When I went there, I was told by one of the teachers, that number one, you're 20 years, you're a foreigner, you don't have any document, you won't get in. Then I say, no, I agree. I want to see the headmaster. (laughs) Then say, but this is what do you get. Then he said, no, you can't see the headmaster. You're going to see the deputy headmaster. <laughs> well, he thought he's going to direct me to someone who's going to kick me out. And I went to the headmaster and I saw him in my marks. Then he looked at me, deputy headmaster. Then he's saying, what do you want to do? I said, I want to repeat my trick. Then he said, how old are you? I said, I'm 20 years. I wish I could have told you I was 14, but I couldn't. So I just been honest. And then he looks at me and he couldn't say anything much. And, and of course, I didn't say, come on Monday. When I come on Monday, he allowed me to do uh, repeat my trick in 1998. And he told me, if your marks are low by half term, I'm going to kick you out. So I said, that will never happen. And of course, at the end of the year, I did well, and I was able to find myself mm-hmm. in Medunsa. So again, what does that say in life? Most of us, we get discouraged. But the reality is that, that impossible dreams is actually the one that you should be pursuing, not the one that is so possible. The road that seems very easy probably is a road that you should not take. You know, hardship should allow us to think differently. And that's for me it's how life should be. And I always choose the difficult route than the easy route.
0: I'm going to fast forward in the story to the point where you've not only qualified as a doctor and finished the medical degree, but gone on to specialise in pulmonology. And here you find yourself working in rural Pumalanga, dealing with lung diseases, uh, not knowing that down the line, a little further, uh, a pandemic was coming that was going to rock particularly your specialty to its core. Here you sit a doctor who has been persistent, insistent, resilient throughout this story, and those became the qualities that were needed more than ever when you faced wards that were overflowing with patients that nobody quite knew what to do with. What was that like for you, uh, to be facing something that was so unheard of? I mean, even in all of your medical training, certainly you would have dealt with the HIV pandemic in, in, in your training and in your early days of work, but this was different, this was new. Um, you've just spoken to us about always choosing the more difficult path. Uh, this time, did you feel ready for it when it was presented to you?
1: I don't think nobody will ever be ready for COVID-19. I think when COVID-19 outbreak comes, we all, like everybody else, doesn't know anything. We don't know much. So there are so many difficulties in different professions, But, like in other conditions, there are very few principles in life. Know your basics. Your basic needs are absolutely very important, whether at your household, whether at your workplace. So I was that person who is passionate about my career. I have my basic training that I masters, And I always say that's how the brain works. When your basics are in order, your brain thinks at upper levels. No, doesn't need to start looking at the basic things and but you haven't done one, two, three. So when COVID can... Yes, I was like any other doctors in South Africa. But I still have a passion. For those who are sitting here, I have a lot of questions people ask me. But how do I know my purpose? What's my purpose on this earth? The question is that you will never know your purpose until you start working on your passion. And if you master your passion, your passion will lead you toward your purpose in life. And I think for me, that's very, very important. And my purpose in life was to be a good doctor, save so many lives. And my passion was to, to really make sure that whatever I do, I do to the best of my ability. So when COVID came, of course, I, the first we did very well until I lost two patients. And that's when I thought, okay, what the hell is happening here? Why am I losing my patients? Because remember now, the family cannot be in the hospital. You have to sit with them on Zoom on telephone, and there's so many questions, and it breaks you down. You know, the kids cr- cr- crying, family crying. You just think, like, what can I do? And that's when I end doing bronchoscopy. Bronchoscopy is not a miracle cure, no. It's just, everybody doesn't want to do it because they think they're going to die. But now, imagine if you're a doctor, you decide you're you afraid to die, or the police officer is going to say, we're not going to go to crime area because we're going to get shot. How will the society be? All of us having a chance in our careers to stand up. And I think for me, COVID was there to give me that opportunity to stand up. For me, it was an opportunity to innovate. So we should not be looking at the problems as problems. We should look at it as an opportunity to innovate, opportunity to resolve those issues. And that's what we should be doing in Africa. And that's for me, COVID giving me that opportunity to be able to, to, to explore my, my ability and also to make difference. And that was unfortunate. What I did was not really to make me famous. I want to save life. That's, mm. that's really what I did.
0: I have to say the difference is that there are some police who won't go into crime hotspots in parts of Cape Town, and you were not afraid to go in, in the, height of the height of the pandemic. It's a very clear difference. Um, you have had throughout your experience of getting to this country and training in this country and even working in this country, as you relay in the book, at various times encountered people who have made you feel unwelcome you've encountered racism in the workplace you've encountered xenophobia you've encountered your own difficulties with with police and time after time after time reading your book i kept thinking this is you know would you stay would you continue to stand for it this is going to be the thing that makes him go i'm done and yet you never were how i mean how do you feel particularly as somebody who's given so much to your work in South Africa, when you look at what's happening in Gauteng with, with Operation Dodula and the like and the, the resurfacing of xenophobia, how, how do you feel as a foreigner who has made his life here and, and committed himself here as you've done?
1: Well, I, again, I will say this, life is a journey. So on your way, when you're driving home, you're not guaranteed that's going to be smooth. Means there'll be accidents, there'll be potholes, there'll be difficulties. And they're there for a reason. So if you close your eyes, you will have an accident. There are a lot of signs on the road home. That's the reality. So for me, South Africa, seeing all these problems that's happening, you just saw that people have short sighted. And I've learned something in my life that took me a while to believe that is true. I will never, ever change my life if I'm going to run away. Running away is not an option. I'm an Africa in African. I'm South African and I have documentation like everybody else. That's the reality. And also, I'm South African who should be contributing to solving the problems in South Africa. That's the that's reality. So, I'm not a victim. The problem in South Africa is that majority of people are victims. And when I say victims, it's not limited for black people. Even currently, the white South Africans feel that they're victims too, because they think like, "Be, I cannot do one too," and black people say, "Apartheid, I cannot do thing," and all of them is all rubbish. The reality is that step backward. You are an individual. If your problems is me, how do you expect to change? Because I hold the key in your life. I'm, I'm the problem in your life. Means you will never change. So, means the problem, if you look at life like that, you need to be start viewing that the reason why you're not doing well is because of you. And you need to start looking, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you doing well? Do you have enough skill? Do you have enough education? If you ask yourself the right questions, you'll find that you are the problems. And the sooner everybody starts looking at themselves as being a part and parcel of problems and start solving their own problems, their country will change. And that's for me, that's the reality. So if you look to some Malema or President Dudula and whatever it is, they're very clever individuals. But they're giving a wrong solution to the bigger problems. Because the problem in South Africa is not immigrant. I always said South African got problem with South African. Mm-hmm. That's the reality. So the problem is not immigrant, the problem in South Africa is not white people, the problem in South Africa about the negligency of the black child, the fatherless child. The ability to focus resolving the problems, homelessness, poverty and everything. And South Africans really shouldn't be poorer until all of us start thinking differently. The whites are coming to South Africa, they have done well. How do they do it? Maybe it's time that we need to step backward and start asking ourselves, but why others are doing well? Why this guy come here with absolutely nothing 20 years ago, but now he's living a top leg, like, maybe like a white person? What does he do differently? Mm -hmm. You know, we need to ask all those critical questions. And if you as an individual start asking certain critical questions about yourself, chance are good that we can resolve the issue in South Africa. It's not about one leader lead the message, but it's about individuality start asking the right question and finding solutions for those questions. So yes, I will not leave South Africa. I've been to the U.S., I've traveled around the world. They all have their own problems. But the opportunity that you have in South Africa you will never find it anywhere. And that opportunity requires you to work between eight to 14 to 16 hours every day. If you do that like I did for the next five years, your life will be better. So maybe that's what you should think of.
0: Doctor, everything you've said about South Africa applies equally to your, your homeland. And I know you write in the book with such affection for South Sudan, but with such anguish for the fact that it remains where it is today and that has not grown and blossomed as you feel it should have done. You've had the opportunity to go back, finally. Tell us, I mean, firstly, tell us about the emotional opportunity of reconnecting with your family, but then we'll have a, lo- a, lo- a wider conversation about what else you found there.
1: Well, I always when I go to South Sudan, I always say this: South Sudan, or like the rest of the Africa, is a very, very beautiful continent where the most poorest people live. So the life in South Sudan is not different to the life of township in South Africa, township Malawi, DRC, everywhere else. Africa is a beautiful continent, but I think us, as South African our mindset is not at the right place. So going to South Sudan, yes, I would like to recur back to South Sudan. And the most important thing, if you look at the new book, uh, second edition, I've written chapter 16, where I talk about life. First half and second half of life. First half is a survival. Second half is a life of purpose. So my survival, Age of my life is ending in September this year. But next year, from September onward, I want to live life of purpose. But I found out that after a lot of thinking, If we cannot do something great in South Africa, where I have a lot of people to support me and change things in South Africa, chances are good that I will not even succeed in South Sudan. So I'm I'm working currently on my projects that hopefully maybe next year it will come out. But I need to see whether I could resolve certain issues in South Africa before I resolve issues in South Sudan. Mm. And I think for me, it's so possible here. And I think if you're a South African, maybe it's time you stop thinking about New Zealand or Australia, because <laughs> it's easy to resolve things here, it's easy to find a solution and succeed here.
0: Mm. You have though, you've, I mean, you've, you've gone home and had the opportunity to meet with the president of South Sudan, post-independence, to talk about potential investment there, to talk about particularly building education, and I know agriculture is something you're very passionate about building up there. Do you still hold on to hope and the potential that, that it could change?
1: Well, yes, I think things will change. But the question, change requiring education. So I've taken to myself to, to develop, I would like to contribute in education. And initially after meeting with the president, I mean, it was very nice. I went to meet his office. Everything was in gold. And that was beautiful. But when you step out of the office, all the potholes, No electricity, absolutely there's nothing. So it tells you about the mindsets. So it means you can't expect change from that particular person. But remember, it's not his problem. Like South Africa, Zuma was never a problem for South Africa. But the people that voted Zuma into president were the problem. So South Sudan is more or less the same. The leadership represents the mindset of the people. And that's the reality. So, for me to change, to continue changing South Sudan, I need to focus on this education. Even South Africa, if you have to change the mindset of everybody in South Africa, you have to focus on education, family structure, and you can change. Yes, I would go to South Sudan. I already visiting more frequent, but I first need to focus for the next two years, focus more in South Africa to see whether I could create the change that I want to have, which probably is possible. But it's life, as I say, it's a journey. I'm working that route now and hoping that in the next two, three years, I can create the impact that I want to create and hopefully that will spread to the rest of the continent and also South Sudan at large. But I think it's very easy to get support here than across South Sudan. Mm -hmm. So I would probably start here first by the end of this year or next year.
0: I remember reading in the book your comment that you are the most highly educated person ever to come out of your village. And from what you've said, that's probably still the case. Uh, do you feel a sense of, of responsibility as a role model to those back home?
1: Yes, I do. I do. I do feel each and every day. You feel that you wish the, 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 the situation be different, you wish you want to do so much, you know, and that's the that's reality. But I mean, the problem that being the single man in the land of the single eye man in the land of blind, it can be very suicidal. Because you need to ask yourself, do you have the support that you need? Do you have the people mindset that? So as a result, I started a foundation, which really focusing specifically for South Sudanese, looking at technical training only. I'm not there to offer people degrees or masters whatsoever. Because in Africa, we have a lot of people with degrees, masters from Oxford, they came and they did absolutely nothing. They actually probably designed a good system how to steal from the poor. That's all I know for the number of years. Mm-hmm. So, so until that such time, you need to kind of empower the, the poor masses and see them actually, no, when I say empower, that does not mean hand out. Somebody who is young, healthy, does not need hand out. But you need to have a system that will enable him to succeed in life. South Sudan at this moment needs agriculture, but you cannot support any agriculture in South Sudan when there's so much war at this moment. I've currently been involved in peace negotiation. I went to see the rebel leader. I've met the president, the vice president, everything. And when you sit with them in the table discussing peace, you get to understand that these people are clueless. They don't understand the importance of peace. They don't understand stability. I remember that SABC brewery went and built a invest almost 100 million dollars building a a brewery in South Sudan. After three years when the war broke out, everything was destroyed. So obviously the place become uninvestable. Mm -hmm. So for us to invest in South Sudan, we need to make sure that create a kind of stability, have peace and also allow people to understand the importance of peace. We should not take our peace and freedom in South Africa for granted because it's so, so important. Because of this peace and the constitution in South Africa, That's why we are sitting here today, free, and we could say what we want to say. And that, for me, is very important. People in South Sudan don't have, most countries in Africa don't have that, and that's why they cannot progress. You only progress if you are free.
0: Going back to the subject of role models, I think I saw on social media not too long ago a visit back to JP High School. What was it like to go back as the boy who knocked on the door saying, please give me a chance, I know I can do it, please let me into your school and being told all the reasons you couldn't go there and finally having the door opened. What was it like for you to go back as the proud alumnus asked to address the school?
1: I think it was, was very amazing actually to go back to J.P. High School for boys. For me, it was like, I remember first when I went and stood in podium, I was uh, addressing the metrics last year. I actually kind of, for a minute, I couldn't say my speech. Mm-hmm. Because I always remember Master Tate standing there, and he always like this person with a nice suit and speaking. I couldn't believe that was my time actually to be a role model for the kids. And I think when you go to JPI School for Boys, it's amazing. Like the girls, you know, you you look at the marks, you look at the performance of the kids. You know, if you just take the marks and don't look at the color, you'll be surprised. You will think that wow, these are all white kids. But when you look at that, actually most of the top students were black students. And that, for me, was very amazing. So, and that always takes me backward. If that's black like kids getting so much marks, why are we still having townships? Why are we still in... You know, it it's, it's kind of makes me restless. It tells me that there's more deeper problem than that. So for me, that's what I will always be playing role model for the kids. And I always, for me, was to tell the kids, you know what? A degree is not good enough. You must link this degree to skills. Children need to be able to do things for themselves. You'd rather give someone to learn how to do gardening than actually to have a certificate because he can fit itself with those tools than actually with a certificate. And I think for me that's where the problem we have. So JPI school, it reminds me of this, but at least it gives me an opportunity to be able to make difference, to talk to these boys and tell them my story and tell them how life can it be if you can't do something for yourself? Not what degree you can have. Being a doctor. I've been a doctor. It's not an amazing job. People think it's amazing. But you know what? You need to love it. If you don't love it, it's frustrating. You work 16, 18 hours like for the last four days. I only slept like two hours, three hours, over three, four days. Who want to have that life? But because I love it. So you need to love something for you to excel in it. And if you don't love it, Don't do it because of the money. There's there's no money in medicine. There's no money anywhere. But money comes when you have passion in something. Hmm.
0: Doctor, I mean, there were many children born in South Sudan, probably at the same time as you, who were intelligent and had the potential to achieve the things that you've achieved. But they didn't. They didn't set on a journey of thousands of kilometers on foot in pursuit of bigger opportunities. And they didn't have the resilience that you had to keep on fighting for that dream, no matter how hard it got. What is it do you think that was different about you or the early influences in your life? When somebody asks, why were you able to do it when others didn't? What, what is the answer? First,
1: let me say to this. If I'm a person of South Africa and somebody has walked 600 kilometers to come to South Africa, I'll welcome him and give him an opportunity because this person will be exceptional. That's the reality. But what me... I think my mother was a good role model. My mother was never in the house. If she's in the house, either she was making sandwiches or either she was making, uh, brewing alcohol for selling. She was always busy to bring money for us in the house, for us to eat. And that's the reality in life. I don't know how many people here sit in the beach for every day for, the, for 365 days a year. Because if I do that even for two days, I get sick, my body gets achy. We are not meant to, to rest. We are meant to work. And my mother was that person to show me that as a human being, you needed to work. And that's for me. And the fact that she was a perfect role model because she didn't have time. She had to do everything by herself to keep us afloat. And she had five kids. And she was able to do that. And I think for me that exposure probably made me who I am today. Because you only learn from your surrounding. Your surrounding determine how far you go. And that's the reality.
0: So, what have you taught your own family and your own kids? When, I mean, do they have an easier life than you do, or do you do you want to school them in the same the same school that created you?
1: <laughs> I think um, I think my daughters. I think whether genetic, I'm not so sure. Like my <laughs> firstborn, she has learned one thing: she need to. I don't tell her what to do. I don't tell her when to do her homework, because at the same time, don't call and say, come eat. She knows when to eat. Also, she knows how to do her schoolwork. She knows when to exercise. There's certain thing that is a must. So she have learned from age of five to seven years. Now she wakes up at five o'clock, exercise, read, shower, go to school, come in the evening, she got her own routine. So all the other kids following exactly the same. I don't need to smack them. I don't need to shout them to them. Because they know what's expected. But one thing with psychological power, which was uplifting for them, I always tell them the tabans are the best. And I remember she came to ask me, saying, Why are the tabans the best? Why not the other people? I said, No, but because we are special. And then I, I told my wife, I said, Oh God, we're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and then out of blue, of course, then the carte blanche come out and everything. Now they believe it. Now they work hard like crazy, whether swimming, whatever it is. And I think for me, it's all mindset. Mm. Yeah, so. They're in good space.
0: Okay. The final thing I want to ask you before we open to the floor for questions is, is going back to the subject of resilience. Because I know in our, our conversations before, before this panel, you said that really that was a message you wanted to communicate about the importance of not giving up and of being prepared to take the hard stuff and, and keep on fighting. Do you think that that is something that can be taught or learnt? Or is it something that is born in you?
1: No. It can be actually learned. And can be taught. And and one of the things is that you know, in life, people always wanted to have a perfect start, and that's where we all goes wrong. You know, when you want to do something, don't wait for the condition to be perfect. Assume that you wanna go somewhere and then it's raining. If that's your journey, please go. The rain won't kill you. It is the reason why the rain was full there. And when you walk through that rain, there'll be less cars. The road might be smoother, means you might develop your strength to work. So basically that, most of the ideas that we have in our lives, any ideas that we conceive, if we conceive when you're comfortable, chances are good that it's unlikely to succeed. Most ideas that are, that are conceived when you are uncomfortable is likely to be a success. So today, if I stay in township, chance are good that I will not sleep. Today, if I have hardship, chance are good that I will not sleep. So co- what does COVID-19 did for us? COVID-19 has given us opportunity to introspect. Now, if you have a business and your business is doing bad, chances are good that without COVID, that business anywhere was going to die. So it means you need to find a different way to say looking at it, saying COVID-19 has exposed me today. Come the next pandemic, what can I do differently? It means you have to re-evaluate all you are, all, 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 all your journey again. And, and, and I think for me, success is not something that is super special, require planning. It's just you taking steps and failing and I always tell people you never ever learn from your failure when you when you fail something it's finished you don't learn anything but if you never give up that failure become a mistakes and mistake is correctable if you correct mistake become a success so for me is that don't give up and keep on pushing Stop listening to the noise. When people tell you this is not going to be successful, then maybe you must spend 24, 36 hours doing it because it's going to be successful. Because when everybody knows about the outcome, you're not going to win anything. But when everybody doesn't know the outcome, you're going to succeed. And all of us, i like to believe this. God is not racist. I want to let you know that. In the past... I thought that God was racist. Because if you look at South Africa, you look at a township, it's all black. But they pray the most. But you look at the Stalin Bosch and everybody, it's all white. And that's the reality. So I asked myself a couple of times, is God racist? The answer is no, he's not. Because each and everybody is given, is created with equal opportunity. And I think maybe it's time that we look within ourselves and resolve this. And for you two to sort that out, requires certain kind of determination in you. That hard-working spirit. And believing in yourself, and you only believe in yourself when you look at yourself in the mirror and ask yourself, what did I do wrong? Why am I in this place? Why am I not successful? And when you start asking those questions, your brain also starts giving you answers. Because the brain itself, one thing about brain, the brain doesn't like hardship, doesn't like suffering, it's like easy. So if you tell yourself, I'm going to run five kilometers, the brain is going to tell you, you find that your muscles start aching, even before you run. But if you start running, you find that the moment you run and you tell your brain, I'm not stopping, you find that out of blue, all your pain is gone. Your lungs open up and you start running. And when you arrive there, that's when you start feeling the ache. So basically, what does that mean? For every success in life, you must train your brain that I'm going to do it, and you need to fight that voice within you why you should do what you want to do. I'm not saying that, of course, to do something evil, but do something good.
0: As much as we value your work in medicine and uh, the cutting-edge work in, in pulmonology, we have such a shortage of inspirational leadership, not just in South Africa but worldwide. Have you ever considered leaving medicine to go into politics, either in South Africa or in South Sudan? <laughs>
1: The answer, politics, no. <laughs> but, but will I do something in, the, in leadership? You know, the appreciate that I think there's so many misconceptions about leadership. What is leadership? Leadership starts in a household. You know, if, you have, if you're married, a husband, wife, somebody must lead that household, isn't it? And that's for me, is called leadership. It's not Ramaphosa. It's about what each household do exactly, what each company does. What each doctor does. He's and whatever, even radio presenter person.
0: Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of PageCast. We have an incredible lineup of author interviews. So head over to our Facebook and Instagram and follow Jonathan Ball Publishers to stay updated and in the know regarding future episodes. Thanks for your interest in the story behind the story. Happy reading from everyone at PageCast.